I didn't have a ring for the first several years of our marriage because I'm not a jewelry guy. I've left the gold chains to Pastor Dodds. <laughs> and the convertibles and the shirts unbuttoned, you know, the whole midlife crisis thing. But the more I understood the function of wedding rings in our culture, the more I became convicted that I needed one. And so on our 18th anniversary, I went down to the mall in Las Vegas and I spent $39 to buy a ring to show the world that I was a married man and mostly to remind me of the vows I'd taken on that bitter night in February or January of 1980 at Trinity Baptist Church in Yukon, Oklahoma. You'd think a ring would be unnecessary, right? Well, you'd be wrong. Because God has built into our lives remembrance and memorials, such as Sabbaths and communion and rainbows and a hundred other things. Listen to what our confession says. We just confessed it a moment ago in Westminster Confession 29. It says that the Lord's Supper has been given for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. And then the larger catechism, speaking about the Lord's Supper, also says that it is to be done in thankful remembrance that the body of Christ was broken and given in his blood shed for us. Tonight we're going to be looking at a divinely given remembrance, showing us once again how desperately we need reminders because of the fallenness of our minds. Let's seek the Lord's help as we prepare to hear this vital word. Oh God, our eyes are blind and our ears deaf and our hearts hard. Unless you open our eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts, we will be the most foolish of all men. Oh Lord, we cry out for mercy that you would send the same Holy Spirit who gave this word to now come and illumine this word. We ask for the Spirit's help to interpret, understand, and apply this word correctly, and we make our prayers in the name of Jesus alone. Amen. Hope you have your Bible open to Joshua chapter 4, and I just want to remind you, since it's been a few weeks, about the context. When we open Joshua chapter 4, the, the people of God have been in bondage for hundreds of years in Egypt under a cruel taskmaster under Pharaoh. They begin to cry out to God for deliverance, and he leads them out with a mighty hand, crushing the Egyptians, shattering the military might of the of the most powerful army on earth at that time at the Red Sea, that is the Egyptian army. The Lord enters into a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, giving them a holy law, the Ten Commandments, which are a revelation of his character. He leads Israel up to the southern border of the Promised Land, up to Kadesh, where they rebel. Because of their rebellion, their faithlessness, and their refusal to enter the Promised Land, they're consigned to wander for a generation, for 40 years, until a whole generation dies off. Even Moses dies. Then Joshua is commissioned as the new leader. He too will function as a type of Christ, as Moses did. And then once again, after almost 40 years, Israel comes back up after their wanderings. This time, instead of being on the south or on the, the eastern border of the promised land. They prepare to go into Canaan, and so they send ahead two spies before them. And when they enter Canaan and those two spies are being sought in the city of Jericho, the harlot Rahab hides them from the Canaanite police. The nation of Israel prepares now to cross the Jordan, somewhere between two and five million people strong. 
And then on that day, that day that they enter the land, God sovereignly, supernaturally stops the waters of the Jordan 20 miles upstream and makes them stand up in a wall. He, in rapid-fire fashion, dries the riverbed, and Israel walks across the Jordan on dry land. The soles of their shoes aren't even muddy. When Cecil B. DeMille made movies of biblical themes, he depicted the parting of the Red Sea, but the parting of the Jordan was ignored. But God says not to ignore it. The Lord tells the nation of Israel to memorialize in two separate ways the parting of the Jordan. The only memorial that was needed for the parting of the Red Sea were the rotting bodies of hundreds of thousands of Egyptian soldiers dashed up on the shores. But what I want you to do is dig in deep with me tonight in Joshua 4. I want you to follow along very closely, and I want you to see how this is the perfect text to lead us to our memorial, our remembrance, the table that you see set before us. First of all, look at the dry land memorial. It's in the first few verses of Joshua chapter 4. How was this done? Well, after everybody is safely across the dry Jordan, the Lord gives more directives. Joshua, notice in verses 1 through 3, Joshua is to, to choose one man from each tribe. These would need to be burly, strong men. And you'll see why this is a qualification. The 12 men, one from each tribe, are to get huge river stones. Look at verse 3, and you see the command there. River stones from the middle of the Jordan, the dry Jordan at that moment, where the priest's feet have stood. And they're to carry that stone out of the middle of the river, not just to the river bank on the other side, but they're to carry it six miles where they would camp for the night. We see that called in verse 3, the lodging place, which turns out to be Gilgal. We'll find out in verse 19. It's six miles away. So Joshua comes tribe by tribe. He looks and he's looking not just for men who are strong, he's looking for men of faith. And he tabs them, you from the tribe of Dan, you from the tribe of Judah, you come back out here with me into the middle of the riverbed. These men are thinking, I've already crossed safely. I'm not sure if I want to go, but they salute. They obey immediately, and they follow Joshua back out into the middle of the riverbed. And these men have to exercise great faith. They have to believe as they look upstream and they see this huge wall of water growing and getting higher and the sound, the roar and the rumble coming louder and louder. They have to believe that God is going to hold up the water a little while longer while they get each a huge stone and carry it out. These men are being asked to go back out into the river and trust God a little while longer. In verse 10, we read that they had hurried, or we read they hurried across the river, and now having safely cleared the banks, they must go back. Again, these have to be strong men with stamina to lift such a huge stone and carry it for six miles. They're being asked in verse 5 to cross again, to trust God again, to hold the walls of water upstream a little longer, while they obeyed and crossed for the second time of that day. Why was this done? Look at verse 6 and 7 in our text. We read that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. 
These stones will be carried inland six miles. The stones were to act as memorials to per- perpetrate the memory of God's mighty deeds. They would be visible signs to attract attention and stir up curiosity and remembrance. They would be noticeable by their number, there's 12 of them, their location at Gilgal, and they would be stacked up in a certain way, not just laid out on the ground. But the dry land memorial was not the only memorial to be set up on that day. There was also to be erected the riverbed memorial. Look at verse 9. We read, Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan. This is a second memorial. In the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now notice the dual action. Don't get confused. These are two separate memorials. We read of in verse 9, the second one. You have men carrying big stones out of the riverbed and going all the way to Gilgal with them. And then you have Joshua fashioning the riverbed memorial. Both are doing this under that looming wall of water that the Lord is holding up higher and higher. Now what should impress you? Joshua, to me, is an incredibly impressive man for a hundred reasons. But he's also a physical specimen. Look at verse 9. Look at who carries the stones out into the midst of the Jordan. It's Joshua. He's an 80-year-old man. He has been collecting Social Security for 15 years at this point. But he sets up 12 stones. And the text is teaching us that this memorial is so raised up that it juts out of the water above the flood stage height of eight feet high. When the Jordan was at its usual trickle of one feet high, this memorial set up in the middle by Joshua really jutted up. Now think about what some of the possible objections would be. That God is saying on this day when there are a lot of moving parts, two to five million people crossing the river. Joshua, I, I need you to stop and do some memorial making is what the Lord says. You and I would be thinking, Lord, it's a busy day. We can come back and do that later. We don't need to get hung up on memorializing things. Let's just get across the river and make sure we're all safe and dry. But God says, right in the middle of his miraculous works, they must stop. And with deliberation, glorify God by building monuments. One right in the center of the river, and one six miles inland at Gilgal. God says they must glorify him on the land as their first, as their first steps into the promised land and in the river. And the point that we're being taught here is no one is ever too busy to make God's name, glory, and honor paramount. Have you ever had that sort of situation where you think, we're, we're just too busy to worship? You probably haven't been in the middle of a riverbed looking at a wall of water and waiting, thinking it could tumble down at any moment. God says, no, you're never too busy. God says to Joshua and the nation of Israel, I'll stack the water up for a few more hours while you do what I command. You're never too busy to glorify God. It's always the right time to praise him. And so now the two memorials are secured. Joshua, our 80-year-old hero, has stacked up, according to verse 9, these 12 stones in the middle of the river, and he moves out of the riverbed. And there's some high drama that goes on. Look at verse 18 as they move out of the river. 
we read, it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they'd been standing there all day in the middle of the dry riverbed, had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And so the river, what we are meant to see is as soon as God's people are finished in faith, obeying God, the Lord lets the floodgates down. The river is, is pouring down at flood tide. And don't you feel the, the drama building? Will these guys get out of the river by the time the waters pour into the, the crossing where they've been? And can't you see the, the wonder on the face of all two to five million people on this side of the Jordan? Can't you see the amazement of the people peering over the walls of the city of Jericho as they look out and watch? The people of God are standing on the bank and they've already crossed and they've been watching the priests standing still, holding the Ark of the Covenant all day. And then here comes the flood tides. You see the children. Their eyes are filled with wonder. They see this wall of water now begin to tumble and to pour towards them. And they say, Dad, Joshua better get out of the middle of the river. Dad, the priest better get out of the middle of the river. He's going to get drowned. The water's coming. And as soon as the priests get out, here it comes. The waters go right back over the edge of the banks as before, as in flood season. And they leave. Look at verse 19. They leave and start marching. Israel doesn't rest and say, we made it across. Look at verse 19 and 20. They march the six miles away to Gilgal. And when they get there, remember what the 12 men, one from each tribe, are carrying? Great big stones. Joshua set up the first memorial over there in the middle of the river. Now it's time to set up the second one. The second memorial is destined to become a pulpit because it's from this memorial that for generation after generation, father after father to son after son is going to preach the sermon of the stones. Look at verse 20 and see how that happens. We read, in those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we'd crossed over that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it's mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, I want you to look at sort of the structure of this part of the text. It's glorious from verse 20 to 24. There's an assumption. Look at it in verse 21. The assumption is fathers will be asked by their children about this pulpit of stone set six miles away from the Jordan River. And all dads must know how to answer. Another assumption is signs must be accompanied by explanation. More on that in a moment. And then we see another truth being taught. Look at verse 21. The preachers of this sermon in days to come are to be dads because they will be asked by their children. And then we notice in verse 22 who the hearers of this sermon are going to be. It's going to be covenant children, we're told in verse 22. Your children. And then we have the content of the sermon. In verse 22 and 23, 
Signs must always be accompanied by explanation. There's a powerful principle here. If, for example, the symbol of the the Lord's Supper is submerged in mystery and the ritual done in Latin, something is dreadfully wrong. Signs are to be explained. Signs need interpretation, not mute, dumb signs. Now let me walk with you through some of the assumptions about this sermon. I said a moment ago, the first one is that fathers will be asked questions. Do you see it in verse 21? And all dads, all Israelite dads are expected to know how to deal with this. God understands pedagogy. He's the one who wove us together. He understands that curiosity about things like a pile of stones out in the middle of nowhere is what incites curiosity in a child. And that's why Jehovah orders a monument to be built out in the middle of nowhere so that when children are passing by, when they're going with their father, perhaps over to Jerusalem for a festival day or just moving through the country, herding livestock, Jehovah set this up at a strategic place. So it's going to be natural for children to turn to their dad and say, what is that? Joshua said to the men, all the men of the nation, I'm going to give you the sermon outline of what to say. In fact, I'm going to give you the whole sermon manuscript, word for word, what to say. Now, a second assumption. Signs must be accompanied by explanation. What we see here is God doesn't just set up these memorials and say, there they are, figure it out. What we see is God sets up the sign, and then he gives the corresponding explanation. And that's going to become very vital in just a moment. Now, who are the preachers to be of this sermon? Look at verse 21. And understand something about family and cultural structure. It is the dads. Do you see the wording of verse 21? When the children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Why the fathers? Because once again, we see that it's God's design that dads be the spiritual leaders of their household. They're the ones who are to guide their children into truth. This is a dad thing. And look at another aspect of this sermon. Who are the designated hearers for this sermon? Look at verse 22. Covenant children. Then you shall let your children know. These are circumcised, Sabbath-keeping, Bible-loving children who still need memorials and symbols. And what Jehovah has in mind is that he sees coming up hundreds of thousands of times in Israel's future where there's a crossroads. And a lot of people walking by. And this sermon is to be stated and restated over and over again. In fact, it would probably happen in the lives of some children very frequently if they traversed through Gilgal. They would see it. Oh, Dad, there it is. Tell us the story all over again. Dad would say, yeah, that's the sign for when God parted the Jordan and brought us through on dry land. Now, if you just had a a mound of 12 stones, it would quickly become utterly meaningless or overlaid with superstition in one generation if it weren't repeatedly explained. Seeing this monument, the dry land monument, and the Sermon of the Stones was to be the occasion for a basic summary of the historical realities of God's sovereign power and to analogize it to the parting of the Red Sea. Now notice what Joshua does. I love Joshua as a preacher because he doesn't just stop at the sermon. If you look carefully at the end of the chapter, he doesn't just give the explanation because biblical preaching has always consisted of two essentials. We have men training for ministry in this congregation. 
You might have been told by this homiletics professor or that, well, if you're going to preach biblically, you've got to do these 11 things. And another prof says, no, you've got to do those 17 things. Biblical preaching always consists of the exact same two things. They're simple. Explain the text, apply the text. Oh, I'll add something to the first one. Explain the text in its proper context, and then apply the text. Your hearers should know two things when they leave every Sunday morning and evening. I had a preaching professor in Covenant Seminary, the late Dr. Rayburn, who was glorious, and he would say, man, I'm going to come to your churches someday. He actually did once with me after I was out of seminary. He said, I'm going to sit at the back. And I was scared to death when he came to to see me preach. And I was in dread because of this. He said, I'm going to sit back there, and if you don't tell me what that text means and what to do with it by way of application, I'm going to stand up during the last hymn and say, excuse me, you owe me two things. Tell me what that text means and tell me how to apply it. And so that day that Dr. Rayburn showed up, I did another lap. I told him again and made more application. And so any preacher is going to explain God's word, his revelation, and then he's going to press it home to their heart and their conscience. And Joshua does that. Look at verse 24. This is his application. After explaining the sermon of the stones, Joshua says that, here's his application, this is done so that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord that it's mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so Joshua says, here's the history of it and here's what you're to to feel, believe, and think as a result of the Sermon of the Stones. You're to fear the Lord. That's what he says in verse 24. Joshua says, in fact, not only are you to fear the Lord every time you see this, you're to reverence and awe and say our God is a mighty sovereign God, and all of the surrounding nations are to fear the Lord. Look at what Joshua says in verse 24 in this sermon, the Sermon of the Stones. He says, all of this happened. This wall of water, Israel walking through on dry land without getting a a foot muddy. Israel, the Canaanites peering over the walls of the city of Jericho. All this is so the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites may know the hand of the Lord that it's mighty. God's miraculous deliverance and care for his people, Joshua says, has a message to the world. That message is God is a mighty God, and he protects his people. Then look what happens. Peek over chapter 5, verse 1. We read, So it was when the kings, all the kings of the Amorites were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we'd crossed over. Their heart melted. You see, the Sermon of the Stones had the desired effect. The nations feared God. That was what was intended to happen. Now, it was with a servile fear, not with a familial sort of reverence that we spoke of this morning, but the Sermon of the Stones had their desired effect. How do we apply this as we start moving towards the table? In Joshua, you may be even starting to take this for granted, but I want you to see what God is doing in his people. When God is working in a people, he produces obedience. I want you to follow just a few examples of this. Look at the end of verse 1. 
The Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe. And we read in verse 4, so Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed, one man from every tribe. That's called command and obedience. Look at verse 8. The children did so, just as Joshua commanded. And what you will see as you read through Joshua 4 is complete, immediate, joyful obedience time after time. You see it in verse 10. We read that all this happened until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua. You see in verse 12, the men crossed over as Moses had spoken to them. You have in verse 15 and 16, God says, and then in verse 17, Joshua tells, and the people do. What we're being treated to in chapter 4 is a front row seat of something astounding. Corporate, immediate, joyful, complete obedience. In fact, look at verse 10 for the best example. The people hurried and crossed over. No foot dragging, no slow walking, no delay, no questions. In our foolish culture, people will say, well, you'll know when God is at work because people are getting healed and wealthy and they're rolling down the aisle and jumping a pew. Now, do you know when God is at work? When by the Holy Spirit, he's producing obedience. That's what the Lord is doing here. You should look at these people in Joshua 4 and say, the Lord is at work. Because his people are learning to obey and to do so with joy. But the second application... We're to see here the necessity of remembering, remembering God's mighty acts and covenantally transmitting them to our children. It was Alexander White, the Scottish Presbyterian, who said, the cultivation of godly remembrance is a large part of practical Christianity. How does this apply to you in the New Covenant? The Apostle Paul speaking to New Covenant believers, that would be us, after the cross and after the resurrection, gives them a sign. In a moment, Pastor King is going to come and he will read these words. These are words of remembrance. Listen to what Paul says. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And then Paul is going to tell you of a historical action. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And then Paul adds these powerful words. Do this in remembrance of me. We aren't to ask for constant fresh works of God. Years ago in another church, I had a woman who'd come up to me and she'd say, Carl, don't you just want a fresh word from God and a fresh work of God? I just get so bored with what's in the Bible right now. I get so bored with what God is doing don't you just pray and ask for a fresh work of the Lord? This was the same woman who didn't even know what God had done in history. And so I had to remind her as I pastored her. I had to say, no, what we need to be content with are the mighty works God has recorded for us perfectly, inherently, authoritatively in the word and remember them. Then there are those people who say, Carl, I, I don't need reminders. I have a great memory. Why the need for memorials? Well, first of all, let's ask your wife if you've ever forgotten your anniversary. Why the need for memorials? Why the need for the Sermon of the Stones? Why the need for the Lord's Table? 
Because whether you want to admit it or not, you and I are deeply prone to spiritual forgetfulness. That's why the fourth commandment begins with the word, remember, the Sabbath day. You're thinking, wow, do I need, do I need that word every week? Yes, apparently yes. Because the Lord says, every week I'm going to remind you, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You see, we're just like our forefathers that are written about in Psalm 78 where we read, Israel forgot the Lord's works and his wonders that he had shown them and the marvelous things he had done in the sight of their fathers. What is the function of the Lord's table other than being a means of grace where God pours out his kindness to us? It is to stir up our remembrance over and over again of God's mighty act of delivering us from bondage. Every time we have the Lord's table, this is what happens. Now let me give you some, you parents who your children, younger children are sitting right next to you, some very practical instruction. There's some of you parents, and you've talked to me about this. On a monthly basis, you sort of have a little bit of a dread of communion, and you're thinking, oh man, my kids, they're going to sit next to me, and as soon as Pastor King stands up, my four-year-old is going to start saying, Dad, what's he doing up there? What's with the bread? What's in that cup? Let me give you some biblical counsel. Instead of saying, be quiet, you're embarrassing me. Lean over. You have my permission tonight. Lean over and say, this is a picture. It's a picture of Jesus dying for our sins and delivering us from the bondage of sin. And tell them the same thing next month. And tell them the same thing in September and in October. And about the 30th month, your child will get it. And that's exactly what the Sermon of the Stones was at Gilgal. And that's exactly what Passover was. And that's what should be happening at the Lord's table. We see here, God has given us in the new covenant a sign whereby we can remember God's mighty acts and that we can pass on to our children. Don't shush your kids and say, this is just for adults. Go back to sleep. You won't understand. Seize the moment and say to them, This is the sign of God saving and delivering a people. We need reminders. We need remembrance. The old covenant people, one of their pathological sins was they were forgetters. One of the greatest enemies of religion is forgetfulness. Just as in a marriage, the real threat to a marriage may not be infidelity, but a slow process of forgetting and a gradual failure to remember the vows and the preciousness of that other person. It's the same thing in our religion. We just slowly forget the mighty acts that God has done on our behalf. We need covenantal reminders, and we need them whereby we can pass on the glorious story of redemption to our children. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table. Almighty and sovereign God, how we thank you for your great acts that you've recorded for us in Scripture. Lord, how we especially praise you for the mightiest act of giving your son to live a sinless life, die a saving death, and then conquer death and hell and the grave for us. We praise you for your might and your sovereign power. We ask that these truths would ever grip us, that we might live out our days in the fear of God. We pray that not just as individuals, but as a congregation. We ask that we'd be marked by that reverence and all that is befitting a sovereign God. We pray in Jesus.